0: This is Not Your Grandma's Bible Study, making critical biblical scholarship accessible and fun. Hi, welcome to Not Your Grandma's Bible Study. We're back. I'm Jill. I'm not your grandma. So thank you for taking your time to listen to me talk. For this episode, I'm going to discuss the book of Ruth, it's a short story in the Hebrew Bible about a woman named, you guessed it, Ruth. First, I'll provide a general overview of the book and its characters, and then I will discuss three major themes that interpreters tend to focus on. The concept of chesed, the custom of levered marriage, and the issue of Ruth's ethnicity. Feel free to contact me at NotYourGrandmaPodcast at gmail.com with questions or comments. The story of Ruth is only 85 verses, so you could pause this and go read it really quickly but if you don't want to do that, the story goes something like this. In chapter one, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Melon and Kilion, forgive my Hebrew pronunciation. They leave Bethlehem because of a famine and move into Moabite territory. There, Elimelech dies and his sons marry the Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. After 10 years or so, the sons also die, leaving all three women as widows. Naomi hears that the famine is over and so begins her return to Bethlehem. She tells her daughters-in-law to return to their mother's homes, Orpah, though resisting initially, is convinced to go back to her family, but Ruth remains steadfastly with Naomi. Chapter 2 begins with an introduction of Boaz, a kinsman of her late husband Elimelech. Ruth suggests that she glean from a field so that maybe she'll find favor with someone. It just so happens that she is gleaning in Boaz's field. He notices Ruth and inquires about her. After learning her ethnicity and connection to Naomi, Boaz speaks to Ruth and tells her to glean in no one's field but his, and he will guarantee her protection. Ruth is baffled by his kindness, but he explains that he appreciates her for taking care of Naomi. So he invites her to dinner and arranges with his reapers for Ruth to glean from the standing sheaves and for them to leave extra just for her. Ruth returns to Naomi with quite the haul, and Naomi is thankful to hear of Boaz's interventions. Chapter three recounts the famous threshing floor scene wherein, at Naomi's direction, Ruth approaches Boaz at night while he is sleeping and essentially requests his hand in marriage, reminding him of his obligation to Naomi. He responds positively, but there is an obstacle. There is one man who is nearer in relation to Naomi than he is. Boaz says that he will see if the man will act as next of kin, and if he declines, Boaz will do it. Chapter 4 tells us that Boaz does indeed speak to the other man, who declines the offer because it will interfere with his own inheritance. Boaz and Ruth are married and Elimelech's property remains in the family. Ruth gives birth to a son who is called Obed. According to Ruth, Obed is the grandfather of David through Jesse. The book of Ruth is located in different places depending upon if you are looking at a Jewish or Christian ordering of the canon. Jewish ordering of the Masoretic text, which we've discussed before, the Masoretic text is the Hebrew text with all the dots uh, called pointing that indicate vowel sounds. So the Jewish ordering of the Masoretic text places Ruth near the end of the canon, along with Song of Solomon or Songs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Kohelet, don't forget to check out our episode on that book, Lamentations, and Esther. Each of these books are read during festivals, so this functions as sort of a liturgical placement. Ruth is read during the Feast of Weeks, which commemorates the giving of Torah on Sinai. In the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, and the Christian canon, Ruth comes right after Judges and before 1 Samuel. This story is an interruption to the national story that gets picked back up in 1 Samuel after Judges, It's placed here because of the temporal setting of the story, not because its writing dates to the same time as either Judges or Samuel. The Talmudic references order the books by who the author is assumed to be. Thus, Ruth is followed by Psalms and Proverbs, as they are assumed to have been written by Samuel, David, and Solomon, respectively. Although in reality, nothing more can be said about the authorship of Ruth than that it appears to be written by a single author, perhaps with later redactional touches by other authors. Jeremy Shipper puts it this way, quote, All that the text indicates for certain about the author, historically, is that she or he was literate, knew Hebrew, and seemed familiar with certain ancient Israelite traditions, since the book includes explicit references to characters found elsewhere in ancient Israelite literature. Beyond these facts, any profile of the historical figure who produced the book remains mostly the product of one's analysis of the book, end quote. Concerning dating, there are three major views on when Ruth may have been written. The first theory is as early as 950 BCE. It certainly had to be written after David's enthronement, since he is referenced in the text. David was king of Israel circa 1010 to 970 BCE. Scholars suggest this was a product of the cultural flourishing during the period of the United Monarchy under kings Saul, David, and Solomon, circa 1040 to 930 BCE. Under this theory, it would most likely have been during Solomon's reign. The second theory dates it as late as after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. This theory then sees the story as a glorification of the Judean dynasty during the divided monarchy. Remember, Bethlehem was located in Judah, not Israel. And there does seem to be an emphasis on Judah and the lineage of a Judean family. There is a mention of Judah and Tamar in 412 their son Perez in 412 and 418, and, of course, the establishment of a genealogy for David in 417 and 422. The third theory dates Ruth during the exilic or post-exilic era. This theory notes certain linguistic features, especially Aramaisms, as evidence of a later date. The emphasis on the Davidic dynasty would be high during the exile when Judah lost its political autonomy, Notably, the post-exilic era saw a rise in short fictional works like Jonah and Esther. We've got an Esther episode. Some have suggested that the work was written as polemic against Ezra, whose opposition to intermarriage with foreign wives was a keystone in his policy. Ruth, as we will discuss, was a Moabite woman who married into an Israelite family and chose them over her own Moabite family. All three theories have their merits, and the story is quite meaningful no matter when it was written. But just for the record, I subscribe to Theory 3. I think it was written in the trend of its day, short and fictional, being nostalgic for a political autonomy that is long gone, while presenting an alternate vision to Ezra's more nationalistic and exclusionary tendencies, even if that's only incidental. But I reserve the right to change my mind on this at least five more times. Although the book is set during the time of the judges, it does not fully share the theological perspective of the Deuteronomistic historian in three specific ways. First, recall that the Deuteronomist writes to illustrate the consequences of being faithful or unfaithful to God. Check out the episode on Judges 11 for more on this. In that way, the Deuteronomist is not interested in relating facts about what happened per se, but rather interpreting the life of the people and nations to show who God is and why the Israelites, as a people, could end up in various predicaments. Ruth doesn't show the same sustained use of this paradigm. Second, Ruth doesn't move directly into the establishment of the monarchy, although it does establish a lineage for King David in 417. Finally, it is concerned with one family rather than national interests, and the actions of this family are not said to be the cause of any of the calamity or blessing that falls upon them. For example, there is no reason given for the famine in Bethlehem or the death of Naomi's husband and children. And while Ruth's faithfulness to God seems to be why she, as a Moabite, is received well into the Israelite community, it appears to be her loyalty to Naomi that convinces Boaz to marry Ruth. In 310b, Boaz says, "'The last instance of your loyalty is better than your first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich.'" Kathleen Farmer notes that Ruth's request for marriage is a protection, quote, for her own benefit, end quote, but that the selection of Boaz, a near kinsman of Naomi's, is for Naomi's benefit. Simply finding any spouse for Ruth is not necessarily of benefit to Naomi. Boaz knows this and points out Ruth's fidelity by choosing him. The names in the story carry a certain amount of symbolic meaning. Elimelech means my God is king, which is particularly significant since the setting of the story is in the time before the monarchy. Melon means sickness and Kilion means spent. Both of these characters die in 1-5. Orpa, the daughter-in-law who returns to her birth family, means a back of neck and may symbolize that she turns her back on Naomi to return home. Naomi means pleasant But she changes her name in 120 to Mara, which means bitter, as she attributes her misfortune to the actions of God. Ruth may mean friend or companion, and Boaz, who takes in both Ruth and Naomi, means in him is strength. One of the major themes in the book is redemption. The words redeem ga'al, and redeemer go'el, are used more than 20 times in 85 verses, but there is no consistency of this word in English translation, so its prominence is lost on English readers. I think it is easy for Christians to spiritualize Ruth's usage of this term because redeem, redemption, redeemer, carry certain and sometimes heavy theological weight, but in Ruth the words function in a legal sense. Simply a kindred redeemer is one who redeems by restoring the status quo. Jeremy Shipper notes again, quote, Depending on how the status quo has been disrupted, this restoration may require the relative to perform various activities, including, but presumably not limited to, buying back an inherited field of an indebted relative, buying a relative out of slavery, receiving reparation due to the deceased, serving as an avenger of blood, or providing relatives of advanced age in unspecified ways, end quote. While there are examples of the divine acting as the redeemer, the term in the Hebrew Bible is not necessarily theological in meaning. It seems that Boaz's marriage to Ruth is an act that restores the status quo by buying back Limelech's land that Naomi sold at 4, 3, and 4, and material security. A theme that is heavily considered by interpreters is that of chesed, The term can mean steadfast kindness, loyalty, or faithfulness. Although the word is only used three times, the scholars see chesed throughout the story in God's silent providential actions. Once, it potentially describes God's activity towards humans, and the other two times it describes human activity towards other humans. In 2.20, Naomi says to Ruth, after learning about Ruth's good fortune in the fields, "'Blessed be he by the Lord,' whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The he in this passage would be referring to Boaz. So while the referenced kindness is generally understood to be that of God, the grammar of the Hebrew is sufficiently ambiguous to allow for the kindness to be that of Boaz. So it can be read as blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness that is the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, or whose kindness, that is, Boaz's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. The grammar is ambiguous. The two other instances of this word are less ambiguously about the actions of people. In eight, Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi is acknowledging that her daughters-in-law have acted with Hesed and wishes that God would act with Hesed towards them. In 3:10, Boaz is impressed with Ruth because she has acted with hesed in choosing to pursue him rather than a younger and or richer man, since her marriage to him will be of greater value to Naomi. If this term is only used 3 times total, with only one of those references possibly being about God's activity, why do interpreters make such a big deal of it? Scholars have long noted that God is not an active character in the book of Ruth. God doesn't speak, is not spoken to directly, and performs no supernatural acts unless you think that land and reproductive fertility are supernatural acts. Many of the characters in Ruth talk about God, but there are no prayers offered. The narrator only mentions God twice. Using Hesed as a tool for interpreting Ruth is a way to offer a theological perspective to a book that is not overtly theological in and of itself. As Linnefelt has noted, Quote, one reader's sense of hidden providential workings is another reader's sense of God's absence. End quote. A second theme that interpreters have taken up is the ancient custom of leveret marriage. This was a system designed to keep property within a clan. When a man died without children, his brother is to procreate with a dead man's wife and have children in the name of the dead man so that there are heirs to inherit the family property. In Genesis 38, the story of Tamar and Judah has to do with this custom. Tamar is married to Judah's son, Er, who was super evil. And so God kills him. Wouldn't it be nice if God took care of evil mofos for us today? Anyway, I digress. So Judah tells his next son, Onan, to procreate with Tamar. But Onan spills his seed so that she wouldn't get pregnant. God gets upset about this and takes out Onan too. Judah tells Tamar to wait patiently while his third son, Shelah, grows up. And then they'll try to have a child for Err. Well, time goes by, and Tamar, who has returned to her family home, hears that Judah is in town. She goes out in disguise with her face covered, presumably so that Judah wouldn't recognize her. She sees that Sheila is now grown, and they have not been married. Well, Judah was a randy old idiot who mistook Tamar for a sex worker because her face was covered. He just straight up cussed to the chase and says, Let me come in to you. Like, at least say hi and ask how she's doing. Maybe a dinner. I don't know. Anyway, she asks what the payment will be. He says a kid from his flock, and she demands a pledge that will be returned when he gives her the kid. She demands his signet, cord, and staff as said pledge. He agrees, and they do what men with sex workers do. And wouldn't you know it, Tamar gets knocked up by Judah. Judah sends the kid from the flock, but his servant is unable to find the sex worker who sat at the gate. And the townspeople are like, what are you talking about? There hasn't been a sex worker here in 75 years. So he goes back to Judah, and Judah decides to let it go lest he look like a fool. Three months later, once the pregnancy is undeniable, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and he is livid. She technically belongs to him, and if she slept with someone outside his family, she is an adulteress. Judah wants her burned, which I think is a real misogynistic overreaction. So as she's brought out, Tamar says, quote, the man who owns these things got me pregnant and totally owns Judah. Judah acknowledges that she did what was right since he did not give her Shelah. So the question is, based on this text and the prescription for the custom found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, is leverant marriage really what's going on here in Ruth? and it does not appear to be the case. First, Boaz is a kinsman of Naomi, and therefore by extension Ruth, but Leveret marriage is supposed to be through brothers, which means that Boaz would need to have been Elimelech's brother and marry Naomi for the levirate laws as described in Genesis and Deuteronomy to be enacted. Second, neither Genesis 38 nor Deuteronomy 25 take into explicit consideration any inheritance issues. While inheritance might be the logical next step in those passages, it's not abundantly clear that inheritance was a concern. And finally, in 417, the women of Bethlehem say that Obed is Naomi's son, not Ruth. Let me share two takes on these problems with you. On one hand, Kathleen Farmer argues that when Ruth approaches Boaz on the threshing floor, she is making two distinct requests. One, to redeem the inheritance for Naomi's benefit, and two, to marry her for her own benefit one does not require the other. And the naming of Obed as Naomi's son provides Naomi with a child to inherit. But Schiffer acknowledges that, quote, details mentioned in one legal text but not in another do not mean that the texts contradict each other, but simply that neither text represents a comprehensive account of the possible applications of that particular legal idea, quote. Thus, how closely this story lines up with the actual ancient practice of leveret marriage is unknown and a subject for speculation and much like the Hesed issue, is subject to what the interpreter wants to see. The final issue I will discuss is the ethnicity issue. So what's the big deal about Ruth being a Moabite? That's a good question, listener. Uni P. Lee refers to Ruth as a foreigner kinswoman because of how she is described in the book. Though she is often called Ruth the Moabite, it is always either immediately followed by further descriptions or couched in moments of discussing her relationship to her Israelite family. So let's look at those. In 2.2 and 2.21, the narrator refers to her as Ruth the Moabite, but the 2.2 reference comes right after a reference to Ruth's relationship to Naomi and right before Naomi referring to her directly as daughter. In 2.21, the reference comes right after Naomi calls Boaz our kindred redeemer. 1.22 4-4 4.4 and 410 all refer to Ruth the Moabite with a qualifier of her relationship to the clan, Naomi's daughter-in-law, wife of the dead man, and wife of Malon, respectively. Ruth never refers to herself as a Moabite. Shipper notes, quote, The only possible reference that she makes to her ethnicity occurs in 210 when she tells Boaz that she is a foreign woman. Yet this term can also refer to a woman who is married to another man, regardless of her ethnicity. Since Ruth is speaking to Boaz, she could be identifying herself as either a Moabite or the wife of the Ephrathite, Melon, or both, end quote. Whatever she means, she does not explicitly call herself Moabite. As mentioned before regarding dating, some have understood the reference to a Moabite to be polemic against Ezra's xenophobic campaign against foreign marriages. Portraying a Moabite woman as one who can assimilate into the Israelite people may serve as a type of propaganda, since there are biblical traditions claiming that Moabites are historical enemies of the Israelite people. Several texts refer to Moab as Israel's enemy. See, as just a few examples, Judges 3.12-30 or 1 Chronicles 18.2 and Numbers 25.1-5, 1 1 Kings 11.1-2, Ezra 9.1-2, and and Nehemiah 13.1-2 condemn sex and marriage between Israelite men and Moabite women. Another perspective Suggests that the marriage may reflect traditions that trace Moabite ancestry through Lot, such as Genesis eleven twenty seven and 1937, and Deuteronomy 2, verses 9 and 19. Lot is the son of Abram or Abraham's brother Heron. According to Basilel Porton, through the marriages of Rebekah to Isaac and Jacob to both Leah and Rachel, Abraham's line is reconnected to his brother Nahor's line but Haran's line is not reconnected with Abraham until Ruth marries Boaz. Shipper does note, however, quote, to be sure, Porton's argument would work if Ruth were an Ammonite, since the Ammonites were also descendants of Lot, end quote. Thus, Ruth can be read as polemic against Ezra's policies by showing an exemplary Moabite in an Israelite family, or it can be read as showing that the Moabites have always been a part of the family of Abraham. Ruth once again presents itself as a Rorschach test, telling us more about what interpreters find important than what the author of Ruth holds important. So there you have it, a very general overview of the book of Ruth and some of its key interpretive issues. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something that you didn't know before. If you have any questions or comments, You can email me at notyourgrandmapodcast at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at notyourgmapod or Instagram at notyourgrandmapodcast. The website is nygbspodcast.wordpress.com. So please take a moment and give the podcast a nice five-star review and tell others why you listen. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay home if you can, and uh, wear your mask. It's not a big deal. Catch you next time. Amen and see ya.